You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning and welcome to the Dean's class as we continue through Ephesians and we look at the tail end of chapter 5 into chapter 6 and we'll end at around uh, verse 9 in chapter 6 and this is uh, the end. Uh, really, we have one more class after this. It'll be Labor Day weekend where we tackle uh, talking about putting on the full armor of God, which is how Paul sums up his letter, <clears throat> and rightly so, because what we have been talking about is the new life in Jesus Christ, the new heart that we've been given uh, by the regeneration uh, in his spirit. The first three chapters of Ephesians tell us uh, what the doctrine of salvation is and a a doctrine of God, and it lays the groundwork for understanding what the implications of the gospel are, namely how we live together as Christians, which are some of the hardest and most difficult people to live with. And last week we talked about, or the week before last rather, because we had Chuck Collins in with us. Uh, we talked about what it means to uh, walk the Christian walk and how that is meant to be uh, a way of holiness and it's also meant to be together, but also how holiness or this understanding of sanctification uh, happens in the life of the Christian. And I used a little shorthand uh, definition that sanctification is getting used to your justification, uh, but how it is that we grow in the knowledge and love uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul says, in light of all of that, let me talk to you about how your sanctification actually works itself out. Because how you think it works itself out and how it really works itself out are often two different things. As I said earlier, many people want to privatize their spiritual life. They think it's between me and Jesus. And if I am to be holy, it means spending as much Uh, time apart from other people as I can possibly spend. Uh, And that worked itself out certainly in the Middle Ages when monasteries and nunneries became the thing because that's what you did. If you wanted to be a holy person, you went to a monastery. You didn't talk to anyone and you were quiet. You were giving yourself wholly over to God. But in Ephesians, Paul says, that's not how sanctification works. That's not what it means to be holy. Of course it's important that we spend time uh, with God alone. Even Jesus went away to a quiet place to spend time with his follower. And in the same way, we ought to be spending time with God in his word and in prayer. But he's given us his church. And Paul demonstrates this morning how sanctification actually works itself out in and through human relationships. And before we turn completely to God's word this morning, let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be more like you. And Lord, we thank you for those you've given us uh, in our lives to help us become more like you and to learn really what it means to be a Christian and to really know what it means to rely on you and you alone for our sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read uh, for us uh, chapter 5, beginning with the 21st verse and then uh, all the way into chapter 6 through the 9th verse. 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, as is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of of his body, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of God, or rather of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you would turn with me to this passage of Scripture, page 978 in your Advent Pew Bibles, we're going to look at how God does his work on us by his Spirit within the marriage relationship, in our relationship with children and their relationship with us, and also in commercial dealings or as in Paul's day, the relationship between slaves and masters and masters and slaves. He begins in verse 21, which in many translations of the Bible, maybe in the one that you have, sometimes is set apart as a completely different paragraph. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a key that begins to unlock the joy of the Christian life, a right and biblical understanding of what submission actually is and the need for us to submit not just to the Lord Jesus Christ, but to actually submit to one another. This call to submission does not come naturally to us. Uh, Some of the first words of my children were mine and... um, Give me that, 
And even uh, this morning, I heard my daughters arguing about that article of clothing belongs to me and not to you. And so they went and they got another pair of their sister's clothes and put it on. And they were still mad at the other one for having their clothes in the first place. This is something that we don't need to be taught. We don't want to submit to anyone or anything. And even things that are completely reasonable, we don't like submitting ourselves to. Waiting in line at the DMV, we have an overdeveloped sense of self-importance that makes us think, I shouldn't have to wait in this line. Now, you and I aren't better than anybody else, but there's a part of us that expects some preferential treatment and, in fact, for everyone to submit to us and to what we would will. And this is exactly what makes relationships particularly difficult, especially marriage, children, and even in the workplace. Because these relationships require submission in order for them to work. And it's only by a work of grace is this possible. I mean, do you understand that? That the reason why Paul brings up these relationships is because this is where often we see our need for God in sanctifying us. We're not the husband or wife that God has called us to be. We're not the parent or child that God has called us to be. We're not the boss or the employee that God has called us to be. It doesn't come natural to us. And so we need God's supernatural intervention to do that work in our hearts so that we might submit to the role that he has given us in in these relationships. This is only by a work of grace that we are able to do this. And I even hear Christians sometimes say, I submit to no one but God. Well, Paul here says Well, if that's true, then I don't know that you are actually submitting to God. Because if we're not submitting to one another, then how are we going to submit to God? Paul clearly brings these two relationships, or the relationship between the the three of these, to the relationship with God about how submitting in these relationships demonstrates our submission to God as his children. And anyone who thinks that they can go through life without submitting to someone, or even just submitting to God alone, is fooling themselves. Bob Dylan sings about this. You've got to serve somebody. At any given moment in your life, you're submitting yourself to someone or something. And it may not be a godly submission. You might be given over to a passion or an addiction. But it's that passion or addiction that you're serving and that orders the rest of your life and determines how you act and how you behave and how you live day in and day out. If you're in the United States military, you're submitting yourself to that so that your life and your family and all of you really is subject to what the United States military says that you're to do. When you're told you're going to deploy, you don't say, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to submit to you. No, 
you submit and that begins to have implications for your husband or wife and your children and, and maybe even the job that you hold if you were in the reserves back here uh, where you call home. You have to serve somebody. And so who are you serving? I love the collect that we often pray in morning prayer where we pray to Jesus in whose service is perfect freedom. Being a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way that you will find freedom. Being a bondservant to his word and to his will is the only way that you will find freedom. And just as an aside, I wonder, especially in light of everything that's happening in our country these days, how you would define freedom. What does it mean to be free? I think many of us would say, I'm just thinking out loud here, many of us would say that to be free is to have the ability to make whatever choice we want to make and to have that choice within reason honored. But the freedom that the Bible talks about is deeper than that. And even that kind of freedom is still rooted in the self. But actually to be in Jesus Christ, to have union with him, so that you're free from condemnation. You've been justified. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. That you're perfectly secure in Christ and you belong to him. And in that, you find freedom through the security that he brings. And so when you think of freedom, how do you think of freedom? And is that really the freedom that Jesus has come to bring? Freedom for you to say, well, I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to do. But actually, what does it mean to be free in Christ? So as we approach this passage with these ideas of freedom that we have in our mind, especially alongside the issues that are brought up here, uh, and I'm going to have to move quickly if we want to get through all of this because we're going to spend quite a bit of time on husbands and wives, and then I want to get into the Bible's understanding of slavery uh, and sandwich between the two, children and parents. But um, but what... Uh, when we come to a passage like this, we have to acknowledge the cultural lens that we see through. And we must acknowledge that culture is godless and Christless, leading us to a corrupt view of what God is saying. But as believers, we have to repent of this. And as we come to this passage, expect that what God is saying will stand in opposition to the world. And we get to a passage like this and we think, well, we might even be super Christian about it and say, well, that's the ideal, but that's not necessarily the reality. This is aspirational, but get with it. Uh, we might also say... Uh, well, I'm just not going to read this because I don't want to hear it. <laughs> uh, I don't want to have anything to do with any passage that says this is my responsibility as a husband or this is my responsibility as uh, a wife and because we live in the year 2020, I can automatically discount it. Uh, 
And there is a propensity among some that when they read this passage, they think, well, what we really need to do as a church is to keep up with the times. Let me tell you, any church who uses the phrase, the need to keep up with the times, are the dying words of an unfaithful church. The moment that anybody says, well, what the Bible says is outdated, you can forget it. Anybody that says that was true then, but it's not true now, walk away from that church. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Just walk away. Now, of course, uh, there are Bible passages that are rooted in a context, and we need to understand, like we do in Ephesians, to understand who Paul is talking to here in Ephesus, and many of the situations and struggles that they are dealing with are different than uh, what we would deal with today, uh, but God's word still speaks today. And it's not that the Bible contains the word of God and you have to mine through it to find it, but in fact the Bible is the word of God, full stop. And so when we're confronted with something that we don't like and we think, well, I don't like what God is saying here and he must be wrong, the reality is that we're the ones with the problem, not God. It's not that God needs to catch up with us, but our hearts need to catch up with God. And so as we come to this passage, we need to come with an open heart and saying, God, I believe, help me in my unbelief. God, I struggle with what you're saying here. Help me to live into it, because it's only by your spirit only by your power that I'm going to actually be the husband, wife, child, mom, dad, employer, employee that you've called me to be. So let's look at wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I I think I told you, I I read this passage to Lauren a couple weeks ago in preparation for this class, and I said, well, what do you think about that passage? And she said, nothing at all. (laughs) And then she just left uh, left the room. Now, she was being cheeky with me, uh, but the point remains, yeah, we don't like to hear this, Uh, especially uh, if you are a wife. But let's talk about what submission actually means, because submission is throughout the Bible, and not just a call of submission to, um, to human beings, but even in God himself, you find submission. So in Genesis, when you go back to the creation of Adam and Eve, God says that Adam needs a helper. And the Hebrew word that he uses there is ezer. And this harkens to the need of, uh, of a man needing the help uh, of a woman that they actually together uh, represent the fullness, or as close as we can get to earth, the fullness of who God is, because both male and female are created in God's image. That's why a man alone is not the full representation of the image of God, though made in the image of God, that there's something different about men and women. And a lot of people say, well, I don't like the fact that it refers to a wife as a helper or a helpmate. But you know that every other time the word Ezer is used in the Old Testament, it's used referring to God. And so the word that's used to describe the position of the wife 
In the relationship is also the word that's used to describe the position of God in the life of his people. How God relates to them. And the issue of submission is not one of humiliation, but it's giving way to the other person. It's acknowledging, ultimately, that what you're submitting to is not simply a husband, but what you're submitting to is God himself. Now, we've lost something in our prayer book. I think that the prayer book does, uh, in the 1979, does a really nice job of laying out sort of the un- an under- an- a biblical understanding of marriage, although I think that uh, getting rid of some things like... Um, um, making sure that, um, that, that sin is curbed by marriage, especially sexual desire, that was taken out. And I even think the ordering uh, of, of what marriage is about um, is, has been thrown off a little bit. But all that to say, by and large, the 79 is, is very good. But one of the things that the 79 did change uh, was that it took the word obey out of the vows that the wife would take Uh, that the bride would take to her future husband um, and made them both the same. And I can understand why why that is, but what people forget is that what was also taken out is what the man said when he put the ring on his wife's finger. And this is what he said. With this ring, I thee wed, and with my body... I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. Let me tell you, that's a harder promise to make than obey. I am going to worship you with my whole body, which means my whole life is now, it's not sort of bowing down and saying, oh, I worship you. But the biblical understanding of worship that we've talked about, of giving yourself wholly over to the other person. I now live my life for you, my wife. And everything that I have, I give to you. I mean, think about that in a divorce proceeding. Well, it seems fair to me that we just cut it 50-50. And the wife says, but when you made a vow to me, you said, with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. So according to the prayer book, she gets it all. And if you had a husband who worshipped the ground that you walked on, who gave themselves fully over to caring for you and loving you and taking the initiative in your life to, to draw you closer to the Lord Jesus and to say, All of this that I have and I've made in my earnings, it's it's all yours? Submission becomes a very different thing, doesn't it? And that's the kind of submission that Paul is talking about here. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, how this works itself out in the midst of marriage um, it, it's not, as I've said earlier, earlier, it's not humiliation. It's not saying, woman, go fix me a sandwich. Woman, go and do this, go and do that. No, a husband, parent, or master must only command what God commands and forbid what God forbids. Because if not, 
it would be an act of unfaithfulness to submit. And so you're submitting to godly leadership within the life of the family to the husband. And how this normally works itself out in, in our family, you know, there's a joke in my wider family where I had an uncle uh, that once told us that the secret of success in his marriage that throughout their marriage, uh, and this couple has been married over 50 years, and uh, well, golly, at this point, probably pushing 70. Uh, but my uncle once said that the secret of success in his marriage to my aunt was that uh, all the little decisions he left up to my aunt. And all the big decisions he would make on behalf of the family. And he said, after 50 some odd years, our family has yet to make a big decision. Um, uh, so how it manifests itself in the life of your family may be different, but there is an expectation of the wife to submit uh, to the godly leadership of her husband. And there is a need for a hierarchy in any kind of relationship or in any kind of structure. It can't simply be Liberty Hall. And I think it's kind of funny how most of us who are parents have no problem saying, well, of course, the children are underneath of us, uh, but we would take issue with any other relationship that would categorize us in submission below somebody else. And I love it that... Um, the, that while the husbands... Now one of the things I want you to see, too, that what Paul is saying here, Paul is... It's as if he's turning and speaking to specific groups. So he's, he's sort of saying, okay, now, women, I want to talk to you for a minute. Husbands, sit tight. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, as is himself its Savior. With my body, I thee worship. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And you can see the guys over here on this side of the building saying, mm-hmm. And then Paul says, now, ladies, just sit there for a moment. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, he wipes the smile right off any smug husband's face. Now, I do want to step back for a minute because some of you may be saying, well, you know, Paul is just a crusty old bachelor. What does he know of marriage? There are indicators that Paul was married, but the Bible doesn't say it explicitly. Uh, but if you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and in fact, if you just read through all of 1 Peter, you'll find that Peter is echoing everything that Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 5. And although the Bible makes no mention of Peter's wife, uh, we do know that the Lord Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, and the natural way in which we develop have a mother-in-law is that we're married to a woman. Uh, so Peter was married, and he's echoing the same thing. So no one can sit back and say, well, that's just Paul's perspective, and we can move on. No, this is the Bible's perspective, and uh, Peter underline, underlines it in his first uh, epistle. And I'm not going to get into the differences between men and women uh, and how we complement one another. But moving forward, I, I want to um, uh, continue to um, talk about the, relation, about the responsibility of husbands. So we turn to the husbands. <clears throat> one last thing about Paul. If you're, if you're one of those people who has said, well, I, I don't agree with Paul on this. Well, he's wrong. Uh, well, then how do you know that he's not wrong about 
Christ's atonement. How do you decide what Paul is right about and what he's wrong about? Uh, for all scripture is God-breathed and is useful uh, for the life of the Christian and shaping us and leading us and guiding us into the man or woman that God has called us to be. And so he says this to the wives. Be an easer to your husband. Be a helper to your husband. Love your husband. Submit to your husband. Especially in, in the form of godly leadership. Because that's key here. That's what, what Paul is saying. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He didn't say, husbands, love your wife. It, it is an absolute necessity that the husband models the love of Christ to his wife and to his children. I heard somebody not that long ago give a talk and said that the best gift that you can give your children is to allow them to see how you love your wife. And there's a lot of truth in that. In fact, there's, there's, there is, that, that's true. Uh, it is probably one of the greatest gifts that you can give your children, husbands, if you can show them how you love their mother. And... Uh, and that love can only come by way of Jesus Christ. You're not going to be able to love your wife this way if you're not a godly man yourself. That he might sanctify his wife, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. He's speaking of Jesus here, obviously. But what he's saying, in the same way husbands should love their wives, he's saying... You have a spiritual responsibility as a husband to lead your wife. And so many men have abdicated that responsibility. In some ways, they might rightfully say, well, golly, my wife knows a whole lot more about the Bible than I do. Or she's a more spiritual person than I am. Or I just don't feel equipped to do that, and she's better at that. Well, that's not God's call on your life that you need to be leading. And uh, wives, you need to be helping your husbands, not just saying, well, I'm doing this because my husband won't. How can you help equip your husband to pastor you and your family? And I'll admit, pastoring your family, husbands, is one of the hardest, is the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's easier for me to pastor the Advent than it is for me to pastor my children. Why? Well, as I said earlier, the intimacy of the relationships that Paul is talking about means that you can't project an identity. Your, your, your ministry is going to be rooted in who you really are. And so as you're trying to disciple or pastor your wife and love your wife as Christ loved the church, and as you're trying to grow your children up in the Lord, as we'll get to in a minute, they know who you are through and through. They saw you kick the dog last night. They saw you drink a little too much at the wedding reception. They heard the word that you, you, that you, you the cuss words that you used when the wheelbarrow tipped over and all the rocks came tumbling out. Now I'm, I'm speaking, um, just trying to give you examples, but whatever it is, that, that makes ministry really, really difficult. And even Jesus encountered that. A prophet is not without honor in their hometown. Jesus tried to go back to Nazareth and they tried to drive him over a cliff. It's going to be really difficult for us to do it, but we don't have the luxury as Christians to, as Christian husbands and dads, to abdicate our responsibility. And so we are called to 
uh, love our wives, to give ourselves up for our wives, and that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. This image that Paul provides us, I think, is a good illustration of the sanctifying effect on marriage. I thought I was an awesome person until I got married. And then, just when I thought I was getting better, I had kids. And marriage has a way of drawing the individual out of themselves and putting a magnifying glass on their sin, especially their sinful habits. Because when you're single, no one's judging your habits. And if you have a roommate that is giving you a hard time or anyone tries to sort of assist you in your sanctification by pointing out some of your sins, you just go get a new roommate. And this is why when you move in with roommates, you say, I don't want to share a room. I don't want to share a room. I don't want to share my life with anybody. And how many people get into marriage thinking, you're just kind of a roommate that I sleep with. Um, But I'm going to have the same expectation that you really don't have a say in my life. But here it says that the two have become one flesh. You're one entity. You're one person. To love them is to love yourself. You have no identity apart from your husband or wife. You've become one. And this washing with the word reminds me of when I was a kid. You know, it's not this nice like bubble bath. It's not romantic in any sense. It's when I was a kid and we'd go out and first thing in the morning during the summertime, my mother would say, get out of the house. And we weren't allowed back in the house except maybe to eat. And even then sometimes the food would be put at, y'all eat outside and then be home in time for dinner. And when we'd come through, uh, the first thing my mother would say is, go get in the bathtub, straight to the tub. And we'd been out all morning running around through the woods and riding dirt bikes and, you know, doing things that boys do, playing in the creek. And uh, when I would get into the bathtub and lower myself into the water, all of those bumps and bruises and scrapes that I was blissfully unaware of became very real and very painful. And that's what marriage is. Marriage is lowering yourself into the bathtub and the washing of the word causes all of those scrapes and bumps and bruises that you were blissfully unaware of to become very real in your life. Marriage has a sanctifying effect and so many of us resist it. And we think my marriage would be so much better if my wife were just more like me or my husband were just more like me. But no, it's iron sharpening iron, which is not this nice melding. When the two become one, the Bible's not talking just about the sexual union. It's talking about the two becoming one, and it's iron sharpening iron, and it's like two planets or tectonic plates colliding into one another. It's, it's hard. It's, it's rough. It's... it's And what Paul is saying here is he's pushing back a little bit against the people who say, well, marriage is about compromise. Of course there's compromise in marriage. There's compromise in any relationship. But really, marriage is about sacrifice. It's about submission. At any given moment, someone is allowing themselves to be steamrolled for the other person. 
And I mean a godly steamrolling. I'm not talking about walking all over somebody. I'm talking about graciously submitting and saying, you know what? I'm in a, my husband has made this decision, and that's the decision for our family. Or you know what? This is, this is something that actually is the prerogative of my wife, and even though I have my preferences, at the end of the day, I want to love her and honor her and let her know that I care about her. And so, yeah, this is what we're going to do. It's not about, well, let's see if we can meet in the middle on this one. It's about sacrifice. It's not speaking of rights, but of faithfulness. Okay, well, we've got to hurry. Moving on to children obeying your parents in the Lord. And you see, this is the mantra that Paul has. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. It's all wrapped up in our relationship with the Lord. And here he moves on for those of you who have learned that you're really not that uh, great. That you are in need of sanctification. And children help you to understand the necessity of saying you're sorry. Have you ever repented to your children? And of course here, actually, let's go ahead and start where it starts. Paul turns his attention to the children. So he's wives, husbands... Now, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It's interesting. I wonder what Paul would think about how Sunday school is traditionally carried out in the lives of churches. Because here's Paul writing this letter, which really is a long sermon, And he doesn't think the sermon should be above a child's head. How many preachers actually do that? I'm convicted about this as I read it. How many times have I ever turned in the sermon and said, now children, I want you to hear this? Not like a special children's sermon, but actually to say, now children, listen to this. Or even in my regular preaching, even if I'm not specifically turning toward the kids, Is anything that I'm saying hitting home? Because in any sermon, what Paul is demonstrating here is that some of it might be too hard for their little minds to comprehend, but don't underestimate them. That you need to keep in mind that you're actually preaching to children. And of course, there's a place for age-appropriate learning. Uh, Sunday school is, is a wonderful blessing and something that we utilize here at the Advent to help children understand just how much God loves them in the Lord Jesus. Uh, but in our preaching, it's not like this is the 400-level class and they've got the 100-level. So Paul says, children, obey your parents. Obedience flows from love in this passage. It flows from the love of a mother and a father but above all, from God. And it flows to a mother and a father, but above all, to God. Uh, William Hendrickson really wrote something beautiful about this passage in his New Testament commentary on Ephesians, and I want to read it to you. The proper attitude of the child in obeying his parents, therefore, must be this. 
I must obey my parents because the Lord bids me to do so. What he says is right for the simple reason that he says it. It is he who determines what is right and what is wrong. Hence, when I obey my parents, I am obeying and pleasing my Lord. When I disobey them, I am disobeying and displeasing him. It is true that in so ordering, God, or if one prefers Christ, shows his wisdom and love. Under God, these children owe their very existence to their parents. The parents, moreover, are older and have, more, have had more experience, no more, and as a rule are wiser. Also, when conditions are normal, until the time of marriage, no one loves these children more intensely than do their parents. And even after the parent-child relationship has been replaced by the, in a sense, even closer bond of husband-wife, the parents, if still alive, continue to love their children no less than before. It really is that simple. And as I said before, the, the difficulty uh, of, of really uh, loving um, your children and discipling them and evangelizing them and the difficulty of children obeying their parents. I'll admit that there was a point in my life and I said, well, why should I honor my parents if they're dishonorable? If I don't think that they're the parents that they're supposed to be, am I actually required to honor them? And that might be a real argument for some of you. But it's not an argument that holds up really well, that even if you have ungodly parents or parents who are immature Christians who aren't fulfilling their role, how can you as a child actually minister to your parent by submitting to them, by obeying them? Now, if you think that the wives had it a little bit hard in the first bit of this passage, you get, you get the get-out-of-jail-free card uh, because he sets his sights on dads. Honor your father and mother. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He sets his sights square upon dads because he knows that this is the hardest job for a dad to do. It's really hard. He says, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You know, my own laziness and impatience leads to my downfall when it comes to bringing up my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, and when I'm lazy and um, when I lack the discipline that, that, is, necess uh, that is necessary for this role, um, I tend to say and do things that provoke my children to anger. I'm flippant about things. I, I have little throwaway lines. Uh, just go do this. Get out of my face. Why can't you do this right? I thought I asked you to. All of those things. Rather than actually taking seriously my responsibility of raising up my child in the way that they should go. And being intentional about that. Now, I'm not talking about dads. You've got to say, this time during the week, I'm going to sit down and pastor you as a family. Now, it may do that. I, I enjoy morning family devotions with my family, and we have resources if that's what you'd like to do. But it's also understanding my children are all different. And so I, how I pastor Lily is different than the way that I pastor Mary Cabell and the way that I pastor Ware and that I, certainly the way that I pastor my wife. 
And so you have to figure out, you know, how, how can I best communicate the gospel to my child? And I felt a great burden lifted off of my shoulders when I heard Tim Keller say that, you know, for one of his children, he takes him for a walk. And on the walk, they talk about things. And another child really kind of needs a little bit of extra attention. So once a week, they go out on a, uh, and have dinner together. And they really have intense conversations around uh, matters pertaining to spiritual life. Uh, there's an intentionality required for dads to do this, and I would um, say that there's no greater role, and there's no greater calling, and there's nothing more important than this. And so, dads, it's never too late. Even if your child is older, go to them and say, hey, I blew it. I failed to pass on to you the faith that has been given to me, or I abdicated that responsibility to your mother. And I'm really glad that you're a believer, but, but can we try this again? Can you help me to be the dad that God has called me to be? It requires submission. It requires humility. Now, I know that we've gone over, um, but um, I, I, do want, um, I do want to say something very quickly about slaves and masters. Um, slavery is in the Bible, and I want to read to you what Hendrickson has to say about slavery in the Bible, because especially in the day and age that we live in, uh, lots of people are even saying we need to abandon Christianity because of its support of slavery. So let me say this. Or rather, let me say what William Hendrickson says about this. In the Old Testament, we immediately feel the breath of special revelation. We enter a different world it must be freely admitted that the Old Testament does not regard the possession of slaves to be always and under all circumstances a moral evil. That's an admission we need to make. Israelites were permitted to impose the punishment of slavery upon those nations whose cup of iniquity was full. A burglar who was unable to make restitution according to the law had to be sold into slavery. These were divine regulations of a punitive character. But such stipulations were a far cry from the divine and indiscriminate permission for anyone to go man-stealing for pleasure or for profit. The divine approval did not rest on the kidnapper. On this point, the law was clear. Quoting Exodus 21.16, Whoever steals a man, whether he steals him or is found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Accordingly, when in more recent centuries some have tried to define moder defend modern slavery by appealing to Moses, they have done so without any shadow of warrant. Well, I think that that speaks for itself, and I would encourage you to go back and look uh, through the Old Testament. Hendrickson, Hendrickson does a really good job, and I'm going to outline some of these to you uh, so you can understand that the cruelty of slavery is exactly what the Old Testament is opposing. And um, maybe I'll uh, put some things up from Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that can help uh, in that uh, conversation because it is really important to understand where the, slave, uh, the slavery issue falls uh, in the Bible. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Uh, you can take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 9 and 10, here Paul is, is um, this is Paul again writing. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, 
for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul would say that those who enslave other people, the Bible would say those who enslave other people, as was known in the Roman world, where slavery was a cruel and terrible institution. I mean, it was a place where in the Roman Empire, if you weren't a, if you weren't a citizen, you were called a barbarian. And, citizen, and, and slaves were considered non-human beings. Very much in the same way that slavery existed in our country. Now, I realize that it, it runs the gamut of the ways that slaves treated their masters, and that's why Paul in Ephesians is saying slavery is a reality in the way in which we live, but Christians need to treat this differently. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. And then turning his attention to masters, masters do the same to them. I think that there's a really beautiful illustration of this. And I'm going to let you draw the parallels between, um, you know, how this might work itself out in the, in the workplace um, because we just don't have time. But I want us to really quickly look at Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> I think this is what Paul is getting at. <clears throat> uh, Jesus entered Capernaum. This is chapter 7, verse 1. Now a centurion had a servant, that is a bondservant, a slave, who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. You can go see that synagogue today. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. <clears throat> now, uh, Jesus says, I tell you that even in Israel I, I, have I found, uh, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, When the man says that, um, or when we find out that this servant was highly valued, he's not saying that this servant has a lot of monetary value for me. I purchased this person for a lot of money. And that's given away in verse 7 when he says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. That word that is translated for servant is not a great translation. Because this is not the word for, for bond servant that you find earlier on. It's actually the word for little boy or little girl or a young person. It can also mean servant or slave, but it's also used in that context. So when you get to verse 7, I wonder if you don't hear it this way. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my boy be healed. You hear the affection, the love. This is not just some slave. This is someone that the centurion loves and cares for. And in the service of the centurion, this servant finds freedom. 
He finds his welfare. He he finds himself cared for. And there are multiple instances in the ancient world and even in in the biblical literature where someone would be given up and said, well, your slavery has ended. And they would say, well, I'm going to keep going because I have everything I need. They didn't feel in bondage, or if they did feel in bondage, they felt in bondage to someone who was godly in the relationship that Paul is speaking to in his context He is talking uh, about how we're to treat one another in this relationship. And as I said before, you can go into it and think, well, what does this mean for me today Uh, where um, there is um, the relationship is more employer-employee and what uh, does that mean? And you're leading your company. Do you have the kind of affection for your employees that the centurion does? You know, if, if you're an employee, do you have the affection uh, for your employer that you trust them and you, you think that they're going to provide for them and that they have you uh, as their uh, primary interest and not just a bottom line? That, that's what Paul is getting to here. Employees render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening. Stop threatening to fire them knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, that there's no partiality with him when we get there. We're all going to be in heaven together, and there's going to be no partiality. Love comes from both sides. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. Now, I realize, especially in this last section, I didn't do it justice, and I may have said some things that caused offense. I certainly didn't mean to. I probably should have formed my thoughts a little bit better, but I felt like I needed to run uh, through it and so if you're really angry with me or think I'm being insensitive please do reach out to me and we can have a conversation uh, about that and I'm sorry Uh, but um, I didn't want us to shy away from it Paul brings up slaves and masters and it would be um, cowardly uh, for us to not engage what the Bible means by those things let's pray Uh, Lord, uh, our sanctification is worked out in these relationships and so Lord we pray that we would not run from them but we would live into them knowing that they're for our good. We pray uh, for marriages. We pray for the relationship between children and parents. And we pray for relationships between uh, employers and employees. Oh God, uh, we need major heart surgery and as painful as it is, uh, we thank you that these things help to grow us more and more into your likeness. And we thank you and pray that you would give us uh, the grace and the power uh, to be able to live into these things. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.